This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! For trust not him that hath once broken faith. Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Winter 2019, Episode 3. I'm Theta, and today our show is about the fifth episode of The Promised Neverland. The opening conversation between Ray and Norman is the big event, and so it has caused our walkthrough sections to be a little lopsided. Um, it's a fascinating look at where the series is likely headed with its layered intrigue, so let's get right to it. Our episode begins by continuing directly from the final moments of the previous, with Norman's accusation hanging in the air. The camera matches the sway and timing of the clock's pendulum during this moment of standoff, reminding us once again that their maneuvering must race to beat the approaching deadline. Ray eventually settles on denial as his initial response, yet his first reaction after his surprise is to grin. Ray will show a variety of emotions over the course of this conversation, and it's unclear how many of them are calculated versus genuine, but one thing I do think we can trust is this grin. On some level, Ray enjoys this game of move and countermove, competing against Norman, but also competing against Isabella. Thinking of this entire conversation as something Ray finds exciting, or a kind of game, gives me a reading of him as emotionally separated from the consequences of his choices. This would jive with our discussions last time about being Emma's opposite when it came to navigating between pragmatism and optimism. Thus, I think even in this moment of being exposed, he begins to think again about how to gain the upper hand. Anyway, the possibility we suggested last time has borne out. There were four ropes, not two, and so Norman's plan gives him an opportunity to test all three of them at the same time. Though caught out, Ray reclines on the bed with what I suspect is a bit of relief. Harboring some secret or guilt often creates a little background stress, and despite any consequences that may follow a confession, there is a relieving feeling that accompanies coming clean. There's no point in denying further, and so Ray cops to his guilt by admitting that he thought he was doing so well. In fact, rather than moving directly into what will happen now, Ray first wants to know when Norman began suspecting him. How did I err in this game we are all playing? Norman's suspicions run all the way back to Crone's arrival, which again suggests that the hidden rope test was always meant to catch Ray. Further, it means Norman correctly assumed that Crone was meant as a counter just as surely as the intentional reveal of the tracking devices. Isabella was taking steps to keep them contained. They were in a chess match as soon as they forgot Little Bunny and tipped her off. Anyway, Norman explains that even though he was disgusted at himself for suspecting Ray, it was nevertheless the first thing he thought of. Further, 
It's exactly because Ray is the worst case scenario that it made him top the list of suspects. It's most problematic for them if Ray is the traitor, while being the most beneficial situation for the enemy. He's the ideal target for Isabella. So rather than break this out in theme later on, I'm just going to talk about it here. But this is another example where the analogy with chess works out. I said last time that because chess at a high level involves a lot of known patterns, masters can often pick up on what their opponent is doing. There is an assumption that someone will always take the best move possible, and it's just that ability to recognize what the best move may be that can make high-level play full of predictability at several points. In this case, Norman assumes Isabella is a formidable opponent, decides that her strongest play for a traitor would be Ray, and therefore Ray should be the top suspect regardless of how Norman feels about that personally. A weaker play would be less predictable, but it would be a weaker play. Ray is seemingly amused at hearing this thought process, smiling ever since admitting to being the spy. Again, I think he enjoys this back and forth, and so wants to hear how he misstepped or how Norman sussed out the truth. Norman has determined more than just his identity, though. Isabella was confident enough in Ray's information to move on the rope immediately, and that confidence probably doesn't come from an impromptu arrangement. Norman guesses that Ray has been her spy before now, and he admits that it has been so for a long, long time. A sheepdog for a shepherd. Suddenly, the quote I chose about being eaten by the shepherd rather than the wolves seems extra appropriate. But of course, this goes beyond how much Isabella trusts Ray at this point. It means that Ray has known what it meant to have their siblings shipped out, has watched it happen perhaps dozens of times, and yet continued to aid her. Knowing that Ray is capable of this therefore calls into question whether he has loyalty to the other children at all. If he can stand being complicit in the deaths of others, can he also stand betraying Emma and Norman? Can he keep this satisfied smile on his face while he deceives them as well? So Norman wants to know, was all of this a lie? The preparation, the tracking devices, the information fed to Isabella? Was there any part of it that was for their sake rather than his own? What Norman doesn't ask, but may be implied is, were you ever really our friend? Asked specifically about the tracking devices, Ray wants to know what is even the point of asking that? Are you going to cut me out or keep me in, depending on whether I've told the truth? It would seem that Ray either assumes that his identity as spy means they will ostracize him from now on, or it means that Norman is deciding his fate based on this conversation. What Ray doesn't know, of course, is that Emma wants to include the traitor no matter who it is, and Norman is taking his cue from her. Perhaps Ray expects the same dispassionate decision-making from Norman that he himself employs, and perhaps if it was just the two of them involved, he would be right. So when Norman says he will have him by their side regardless of his answer, Ray loses his smirk for the first time. See, despite Ray being the one who has the inside track with Isabella, he has made a mistake by allowing himself to be discovered. Whatever deal he has with her is potentially null and void if she knows that he's been found out. If Ray really is trying to play both sides and give himself multiple possible escape routes, then this is the worst possible outcome. Norman and Emma cutting him off closes off a chance of escape, 
and then revealing that he has been found out as a spy potentially closes off any chance of being spared by Isabella. He could conceivably be the only person who doesn't get out of the situation should Norman choose this path. Declaring that he will include Ray, though, means Ray can keep his options open. After all, he wouldn't have been willing to frame Dawn unless he wanted to keep his spy position safe. Ray understands perfectly, then, that he is in the weaker position and asks Norman what he wants. Norman wants continued protection, his information, and he wants him to turn double agent. That is, to feed Isabella false information. At this last one, Ray gets upset for the first time in the conversation. If Norman wanted to feed misinformation, then the smart play would be confirming that Ray was a traitor, but not letting Ray know. If Ray still thinks he's in your confidence, then he won't have the choice between feeding the real information or the false information, because he'll think all of it is real. Craft whatever narrative you want Isabella to believe, share it with Ray while pretending he is still part of the inner circle, and then do something completely different, surprising Isabella and Ray both. That, of course, would mean leaving Ray behind, because he can't betray a plan he doesn't know. Utilize him and then abandon him, as he puts it. It seems, once again, he's upset that Norman is not taking the best option. Norman even agrees that this heartless but effective course would have been the better method, but he explains that Emma said she thought of them as family that grew up together. And then, further, that this is why he changed his mind, that he wants to believe in Ray, too. The interesting part in there is that he changed his mind. Without that discussion between him and Emma, Norman would have kept Ray in the dark about being discovered, and probably would have fed him misinformation, and left him at the end for their own safety, and all that. Now, I think Emma's influence mattered a great deal here, for sure, but Norman will go on to explain that even aside from that, he conjectures that Ray has acted oddly if he was truly Isabella's spy. He guesses that Ray intentionally set them up to go to the gate that night so that they would discover the truth of things. I had guessed last time that Ray probably knew about the outside world before now, but thought perhaps he didn't quite know everything, and so he set up Norman and Emma to be the ones to see what really goes down when someone is shipped out. Turns out Ray knows quite a bit. He just wanted Emma and Norman to be drawn into the truth as well, at least based on what Norman is guessing. If that is the truth, then it strikes me as awfully risky. Uh, they could have been spotted and taken right then and there if their luck had broken a slightly different way. Either way, though, I agree with Norman's progression here, and it's akin to why I guessed it's more likely that Ray plays both sides rather than being a full-blown traitor. That is, his actions don't make sense if he is 100% Isabella's sheepdog. There's no advantage to letting them know the truth if his job was to keep them contained and unsuspecting long enough to be harvested. Therefore, he is hoping to gain an advantage in a different direction, and creating potential allies for an escape was that advantage. Certainly, it is risky to put all your eggs in Isabella's basket, as there is no consequence waiting for her if she decides to double-cross and ship him out anyway. On the contrary, keeping him alive in defiance of convention already puts her in danger, so she's probably more likely to silence him when she starts to risk more than she gains. Anyway, Norman goes on to explain that Ray's actions could be interpreted as controlling both sides of the showdown, concluding that Ray really is not their enemy. 
What happens next is one of my favorite parts of how this scene was handled. Ray's mood is about to shift now that Norman has argued on his behalf. While he was resigned, if bemused, because the game appeared to be over, Norman's indication that he wants to continue and still have Ray as part of things means it's far from done. Thus, I'm left wondering if the Ray we see through the rest of the scene is the true Ray, who finally got the right opportunity to explain his years of work, or if it's an opportunistic Ray who saw the opportunity to present himself as an indispensable asset. It's a great bit to my mind because I can now support either interpretation, leaving the tension of Ray's true intent still intact. Ray's play here is to go back to the beginning and explain in general terms how he became the spy. He approached Isabella, selling himself, as he puts it. It's not explained what incited this action, but I guessed before that somewhere in all his curiosity, he must have stumbled onto part of the truth, which would still jive with this choice. Ray represents his decisions as a long con, basically, a years-long campaign to prepare what he needed for an escape. He set up his own inside job. Norman points out how dangerous this was, but Ray explains why he thought he had a chance to succeed. He correctly discerned Isabella's motivation, that she was driven to produce results more than she was driven to obey the rules. He wagered that he himself represented a valuable asset, and so long as they had an arrangement, she could preserve him for a later and more profitable date. Thus, he bartered his cooperation for a stay of execution and the occasional reward of something from outside the house. Now, Ray receiving things from outside is news to Norman, which I guess means he has a hiding place somewhere. When asked, Ray explains that he wanted various junk, but that part of his rationale for the request was that he was testing what he could obtain at all and what it was impossible to obtain. In other words, he was trying to figure out the limits of what he could ask for, figuring out how far he could push his luck. It also gave him insight into the outside world, presumably without giving away that this was his intent. I guess we'll find out later if Isabella has ascertained this secondary motive or not. Certainly, if he asked for older models of things similar to the tracking devices, then he would be showing his hand. So he must have asked for seemingly innocuous items that he suspected shared technological overlap. He says that he experimented and figured out how to break the trackers. It will take Emma's intuitive leap in a later scene to expand on this, but in this conversation, the important part for Norman's ears is that he got results. He can nullify the tracking devices. Suddenly, the positions seem reversed. Ray is triumphant, claiming that he is the strongest card Norman can have, while Norman is nerve-wracked and distressed. Ray has made himself indispensable and claims to have done it all toward the end goal of ensuring that Norman and Emma don't get killed. I wonder about the original connotation for this line. Um, unfortunately, I don't speak much Japanese and rely on translation, but with what we have, it sounds like Ray is claiming he did this for their sake, not including himself in the statement. If that is the thrust of what he's saying, then it means that he made an arrangement to keep himself safe and yet has dared jeopardize it in order to make it possible for Norman and Emma to be safe as well. Ray has stuck his neck out for their good and has been stockpiling knowledge and know-how for years while they lived blissfully unaware of the danger. So long as they kept scoring high, 
Isabella's own desire to maximize her investments would keep them safe, and that gave him time to work things out. Though I will talk about this some more later on, I want to go ahead and point out that Ray's original gamble worked because he understood what made Isabella tick. It's quite the insight for a kid to realize that his caretaker's ambition will win out over her own deference to authority. But I think in Ray's case, he understood her because he is the same. Her reaction is predictable to him because he can replicate that line of thought. He likewise understands Norman whenever Norman is acting as a creature of calculated logic. But when Norman diverges from this behavior, Ray is surprised or upset, and these divergences usually arise from Emma's influence. This is the case when Ray assumed Norman would talk her out of trying to save everyone. It seems to be the case when Norman goes along with Emma's deception about human trafficking, and I feel like it has happened again in this conversation, where Ray assumed Norman was going to cut him out once he was discovered. This again goes back to that idea of two chess masters facing off versus being caught off guard by an amateur's reckless move. I feel like our series has repeatedly established emotionally driven decisions as an X factor in this grand game. At the very least, it puts Ray out of sorts, and so he is always likely to resist them. Now, whether you believe everything Ray is saying here or not, or even if it's just partially true, the conclusion should still be that Ray is going to look out for his own well-being if push comes to shove as things stand now. He says it himself, I'm not your enemy, but I'm also not an ally. Ray is a valuable piece, and he knows it. He has traded his knowledge for considerations from Isabella, and he intends to do the same with Norman. He can offer what he has, outside information and the ability to feed Isabella lies, and he hopes to get what he wants. Trick Emma into believing the plan is the same, but make arrangements to actually ditch the younger kids at the last moment. Ray knows by now that he can't talk Emma out of it. He doesn't seem to believe he can escape on his own, as he's never countered with the idea that he would just leave the other two behind. Thus, he must believe that his best plan is escaping with Emma and Norman, his fallback plan is betraying everyone to Isabella and hoping she is good to her word, and then probably after that is escaping with everyone. In Ray's mind, then, this is his best play. Trade what he has to secure his best means of survival. Quite apart from the burden that the younger kids represent, I think Ray is also wary of his inability to deal with Emma or predict her moves. Um, so allowing her to have her way in this sets up a precedent for their decision-making that he is probably uncomfortable with. So this is the deal he presents to Norman. It's just going to be the three of them, and maybe Don and Gilda if they have to take someone else. He will help, but that's his condition. Otherwise, they can just die here. In Ray's mind, escaping with everyone means they are doomed even if they manage to get outside, in which case they might as well meet death in the normal way. Norman sighs with defeat and agrees. Ray is understandably skeptical and warns him in a vague way that he better not have just lied. Norman's responding smile is not genuine, but Ray still walks off feeling like he got the better of their exchange. It says a lot about Ray that he thinks asking Norman to completely torpedo his relationship with Emma is acceptable, leaving aside if it's even likely. 
Does he really not understand what the eventual fallout would be if Norman knowingly tricks Emma into letting all those kids stay behind? Regardless, how each feels about this conversation by the end is plain on their faces. Ray wears a satisfied smile while Norman grits his teeth in distress, his mind racing. Ray walks away, and though he is supposed to go downstairs, he takes a momentary detour to look at some of the drawings posted in the hallway. At the same time, Norman appears to be trying to determine his course of action. He is trying to see all the possible next moves and the moves after that. Something occurs to him that makes him break out in a smile, a smile he can't control and so instinctively covers up so as not to betray what he is feeling. We don't get any hint of what this might be, though in context it seems that he has probably hit on some way he can keep Ray in the loop without betraying the kids that Emma wants to save. If you listened to my final speculation last time, I'll just say that I won't be surprised if whatever just occurred to Norman ends up linking with that prediction. Certainly, whatever he is realizing is enough to change his mood. At the exact same time, Ray is having his own mood swapped. His eyes chance across one of the drawings. Best as I can guess, this is one of the younger kids' drawings of him and Norman and Emma. The sight of it sours his satisfaction. This, too, we don't get an explicit explanation for. Um, it kind of looks like Norman and Emma might be holding hands with Ray looking on. Or it's just a kid's best iteration of the three oldest, and I probably shouldn't read too much into it. Um, except I will read this much. The picture was undoubtedly drawn by one of the very kids that Ray just tried to ensure will be left behind. And yet, out of all the things said kid could spend their time on, they drew the trio. Kids tend to draw the things they like or are interested in, and so I wonder if this short scene is a look at the dissonance Ray may be experiencing at the thought of selling out kids that admire him and trust him. It seems to foreshadow some change or decision for Ray in the future. Thus, despite how this long but critical conversation between the two went, each of them has a moment afterwards that recontextualizes the whole thing, and the audience is left wondering exactly how it has changed for each of them. Now that is how you preserve storytelling tension. Ray eventually continues his original errand to report to Isabella. This seems to be a follow-up to discover how Norman may have reacted to the theft of the rope. He plays it off as though it changed little, pointing instead towards the tag training as the main focus. This means that he has let Isabella know that the escape plan involves the younger kids as well, which could be why he is so opposed to including them. He then pivots the conversation toward Crone and the fact that she is back on the move. I think this is more than just a way to change the subject. In the same way that Emma is unpredictable to Ray, Crone represents a wild card in this careful game of intrigue. Crone appears to be driven from a place of emotion rather than logic. While this may mean she is likely to make a misstep and be caught out by our more conservative players, she could also do something that catches them off guard, upsetting other plans and assumptions. Ray is telling the truth about how Crone could represent a danger to Isabella, but she also represents a danger to the double agent role that Ray plays and the escape plan that our trio continues to advance. She sits outside their ability to predict and control like a twisted mirror image of Emma. Anyway, their conversation reveals that Isabella was aware of Emma and Norman being the ones who went to the gate that night, 
and that has caused some turbulence between her and Ray. He says it makes him sad that she doesn't trust him even after six years, which I guess means he's been at this for six years, but this seems like rhetoric only. Like, I don't think Isabella believes he's actually sad to be suspected, and I don't think he expects her to think that he is. They seem to have a very no-honor-among-thieves thing going on here. Considering these are probably our two most calculating characters, it shouldn't be a surprise that they don't equivocate about the fact that there is some maneuvering going on between them. At the least, this exchange lends credence to the idea that Ray had something to lose by manipulating them to go to the gate that night, which means he definitely has plans that don't involve meekly obeying what Isabella wants of him. Overall, nothing in this conversation with Isabella suggests that Ray was lying to Norman. Rather, he does seem to be hiding his role in the gate incident and the fact that he's been outed. So with what the story has presented us, Ray seems to be on the level, um, at least with Norman. Speaking of Norman, we next get a glimpse inside his dream, presumably from that night. He's imagining their escape with the straightforward simplicity of dreams, all of them running out of the inexplicably open gate. Yet no one actually gets that far. All collapse behind him with the strange red flowers sprouting upward. Ray stays alive just long enough to give him an I told you so, and then Norman finds Emma among the victims. No time to mourn though, as some monstrous version of the demons descend upon him, and he wakes in terror. I have to say, this is an excellent representation of a dream. Certain elements are exaggerated, and other elements are muted. The weird and memorable parts of Norman's experience at the gate are the things which take center stage. Connie's body being wet and the water dripping from pipes stuck out in his memory, and so in the dream everyone is splashing through water. The redness of the weird flowers stuck out vividly, and so all other colors in the dream recede toward monochrome. The demon's mouth and eyes are enormous and especially alien, and those are the aspects of those three from the first episode that have stuck out in his mind. Even Isabella is in there a little bit, her head and arms perched atop the demon's giant mouth. But as her presence was the only thing unusual enough to make the dream, she is commiserately only a tiny part of the nightmare in his mind. Now the representation of elements in the dream is nicely done, but the dream itself doesn't have much subtlety for our story. Norman is clearly anxious about the possible consequences of trying to escape with everyone, that it might instead get everyone killed, even his precious Emma. The only thing I think important to take away from it is that his anxiety over this outcome probably means he is still weighing options in his mind. At the very least, he has not simply agreed to Ray's desire. Now, I do think it is meaningful to have him pulled from this nightmare by some of the very children who are being thought of as liabilities. There is an assumption that the young kids will only be a burden, will only slow them down, but in this case, they essentially saved Norman from this nightmare of Emma's death. I feel like this preserves the possibility that they may have unexpected depth or upsides that help win the day, and it may even foreshadow such a development. I definitely think of this interruption of his nightmare and his embrace of the two children as an echo of Ray's reaction to the hallway drawing. Once they make their way downstairs, there is the usual exchange of morning greetings, ending with Ray's. Just as Norman urged Emma to keep smiling and play along back in episode two, 
Norman himself must act similarly toward Ray when others are present. This is especially true around Emma as she is no fool, something she will demonstrate again in the next scene. The three once again use the cover of Playtime to have a secret meeting in the woods, catching Emma up on the rope scheme. I'm not sure how Norman was planning to answer here, whether he stalls for more time or claims it was ineffective or something, but he wasn't planning to out Ray based on his reaction to the self-incrimination. Ray instead seems to enjoy discomforting the two of them at once. I suppose owning up to his role, paired with the story about his long efforts, makes him more trustworthy compared to the risk of hiding it but having it come out later. Norman jumps in to explain everything offstage, and Emma's summation is that Ray is the traitor but is not an enemy. Ray then expands on the story he told Norman, claiming that he was going to explain everything when they came back from the gate, but their actions after that point changed his plans. Indeed, he was waiting, and he definitely skulked around them afterwards as though expecting the matter to come up. Part of me wonders if the way they delayed mentioning the incident to him informed his own decision not to bring up his role in things. Did Ray feel like they already didn't trust him due to the delay? And so he didn't want to feed that distrust by admitting how much he'd been hiding? Of course, the other part of me thinks Ray is very pragmatic, and keeping his back door with Isabella a secret is the best way to preserve it. That part of me thinks he was never going to come clean, and has seized on the way they left Little Bunny and tipped Isabella off as a convenient excuse for this behavior. I rather like that I can find good reasons to believe both ways, as it preserves some mystery over Ray's future role in events. Regardless of what I think, though, Emma and Norman seem to accept this excuse, perhaps in part due to guilt over being the ones who complicated things. Emma then wants to confirm that Ray is still against escaping with everyone, but Ray says it's different now, and he'll help her escape with them all. Rather than being excited by that, or taking it at face value, Emma thinks a moment and concludes that this isn't like Ray. She is getting the outcome she wanted, supposedly, and yet she knows it doesn't sync up with what she knows about his character. She isn't letting what she wants overturn what she already understands. Ray and Norman may excel at games theory and results-oriented planning, but Emma's natural social IQ means she knows when someone is behaving out of character. Underestimate her at your peril. That said, she does go along with it despite the contradiction in her mind. I would expect, though, that she probably has a tiny kernel of doubt in there, and perhaps she would have been more dubious if Norman wasn't there to corroborate. While Emma is excited about the possibilities of Ray as a double agent, it doesn't take long for her empathetic side to take over. Compassion and empathy go hand in hand, and as Emma is sorting out Ray's secret history in her mind, she imagines what it must have been like for him. Doing so cools her enthusiasm, as she realizes he would have had to have seen a lot of children leave before now, always knowing what really awaited them. Her world has been flipped upside down by Connie's death, and so putting herself in Ray's shoes to imagine that playing out over and over again invokes sympathy in Emma. She says it must have been painful, knowing and sending them off without saying anything, so many of them. This is probably a reaction we should have expected from Emma, and the pain she is imagining he went through is in reality her own projection, the way she would feel if she had to endure it. I don't think Ray went through that kind of turmoil. 
This seems naive once again on the part of Emma. However, this human understanding also allows her to make the next leap, something Norman missed entirely. Ray had told him about experimenting on the tracking devices and finding a way to successfully nullify them. He and Norman both are focused on this end result, the outcome of the experimentation and what was learned. But Emma, with her more means-focused and empathetic approach, intuits that any such experiments must have involved actual people. And so she has to wonder, what happened to them? She quickly guesses that there must have been multiple such instances, and that a failed attempt to counteract the devices might have resulted in someone being shipped out early. So she wants to know if her line of thinking is true. Did Ray essentially sacrifice other people towards saving him or them? It's an uncomfortable question, and so she withdraws it. Uh, once it's out there, I think they can all guess the answer anyway. Rather than dwell on this, she focuses on the upside, that his past success now means they can all escape together. But then, Emma takes Ray's hand and says to never do something like that again. Her expression is severe, and she seems to be gripping his hand harshly to emphasize what she's saying or to try to keep her emotional response in check. Ray raises a hand in surrender, promising never to do it again. But I can't help but feel that this is a prominent bit of character foreshadowing for Emma. She's compassionate and loving and sweet and energetic, and her optimism and innocence about the world are endearing, if also a liability. However, in this little exchange, we get a glimpse of something else, something a bit more fierce. Emma may be a bit of a mama bear under all that default compassion, if she is put in a situation where she believes the lives of her family are in peril, I now expect her to be capable of something rather extreme. Her protective instinct will likely prove to have teeth. The thing I really want to emphasize in all this is how Emma and Norman had different thought processes when confronted with Ray's story. It's a great way to emphasize how they differ as characters, and their questions and actions sync up nicely with what we already understood about them. Now, Don and Gilda have been waiting in the main field while the trio had their conference, and of course, they don't fail to notice their exclusion. Gilda wonders if this has a meaning beyond just the need to be careful. I expect Crone's whispered words to her are still sitting in the back of her mind, stoked here and there by little things that she notices in the other's behavior. That time bomb conflict we talked about last time is definitely advancing towards detonation. It's also influencing Don, who cares less about what they might be talking about and more about the fact that it takes up time. He is motivated to strike out as soon as they can because he believes they are going to go try to save Connie. This couldn't possibly come back to bite them. While the trio return and Emma has separated a bit, we can see Ray rubbing his hand, emphasizing that Emma was squeezing pretty hard. Norman brings up something that I suppose bothered him from their previous conversation. He reminds Ray that he said he did it so that the two of them don't get killed, and then goes on to ask if maybe he is actually… something. Emma interrupts because she has her own news to share, but what do you think Norman was about to ask there? Do you think he has reached the same conclusion I have? That Ray is including them because he thinks it improves his chances of coming out of this alive? And if so, did he really only just recently reach this conclusion? You see, I've been wondering about the timing of all this, and it made me stumble over a little bit of world building. 
I was trying to figure out why Ray chose this gate incident with Connie to arrange for Norman and Emma to discover the truth. It sounds like he would have had a chance every two months and yet is only doing it now. Is there something about the current year or season that causes him to make his move? The obvious answer is age. Our little demon shopping list shows that all of our trio are 11 years old, and we also know that you get shipped out at 12 no matter what. I wondered then, which of our trio would hit 12 first? Is it Ray? Is that why he is suddenly motivated to set things in motion? There hasn't been any references to their relative ages, I don't think, but there is that shopping list and the numbers listed on it. I thought perhaps this might provide some insight, but at first glance, they seem to be assigned randomly. We have the ages right there, but our first number is in the 20,000s, which is Norman, and then the 80,000s, and that's Ray, then there's two in the 60,000s for Emma and Gilda, then back to the 10,000s for Dawn. That's definitely not their order by birth, right? However, all the kids on this list we see end with the number 94. And what's more, all the ones 10 and up end with 194, while the seven-year-old at the bottom of the page ends with 294. That's too regular to be random. Likewise, Isabella identified herself to HQ as 73584, again ending with four, and only 10 off from the 94 of all of our kids. These can't be years, of course, but the grouping of these kids in the same age range together, compared with her being slightly further off, must mean something. I confess I spent too much time trying to parse this, because it's actually pretty simple. They are numbered in order, there's no code to it at all, it's just that the numbers are backwards. Flip them all around, and they aren't mysterious at all. Ray becomes 49118, Norman 49122, Emma 49136, Gilda 49156, and Don 49161. Isabella, in that case, becomes 48537, less than 600 spots away from Ray. Oh, and this definitely suggests that Ray is the oldest, as I wondered, which means he was set to turn 12 first. I don't want to try to go too hog-wild extrapolating from these numbers, uh, but I will revisit them in speculation, as they might reveal something about the world. Anyway, from that we can see that Ray and Norman are pretty close together, just four apart, while Emma is further back from Norman, 14 apart. Thus, I guess Ray and Norman are closer to 12, and Emma might be closer to 11. Ray, and perhaps Norman, also might have been getting pretty close to the cutoff to be shipped out no matter what. And that seems like a pretty reasonable impetus to have stirred things up now. To have cut it so close then, you have to start wondering if Ray was holding out to see if he could manage to escape by himself. I mean, spilling the secret in a less dramatic way a year ago would have given them way more time to plan things and a better season in which to try to survive outside. Maybe Norman is wondering the same thing, but for the moment there is another matter to attend to. Isabella's hidden room. It seems Gilda and Emma have done a little reconnaissance and discovered that Isabella disappears at 8 o'clock each night. In trying to demystify this, Emma has concluded that the house has a hidden room. Her foot-measuring activity that Norman interrupted last time was how she not only confirmed but located said room. The distance to where the wall should be in the hallway and where it actually is inside Isabella's office do not match up and since she always goes into the office or washroom before disappearing, the secret room must be between them. 
They've noticed bookshelves in that area and thus suspect that there is a hidden door. Aside from the secret room revelation, this also tells us that it's not that unusual for the children to go into her office when she is not around, otherwise Emma would never have been able to measure it in such a suspicious manner. Ray suggests that such a room must be for scheduled check-ins with headquarters, something she apparently does every day. The idea of a headquarters and the expansive network that implies was news to Dawn, and I guess Gilda as well, which makes you wonder how much of the truth they are going to tell on purpose and how much they might accidentally let slip. The asymmetrical understanding of the situation is going to cause confusion as they go along. Once Dawn learns of such a room, he immediately suggests that they see if they can use it to communicate with the outside world, or look for clues as to where Connie might have gone. From the little bit he knows, this probably seems like a reasonable suggestion, but of course the trio aren't going to consider it because they know there is no one on the other end of that line who can help them. Dawn imagines them as isolated and trapped on the orphanage grounds, and if the rest of the world around them knew about their plight, they could surely get some help. But that isn't true at all, and it's not going to be easy to explain why his assumptions are off base without spilling more of the story. For the moment, they try to head off his train of thought as well as they can. Ray suggests that the communication would only link to headquarters, and that Isabella won't know where their siblings are taken. Their tracking devices could potentially give away their location, and they know nothing at all about what kind of security such a room might have. Don tries to argue, but Ray is insistent that the risk overwhelmingly outweighs the merit, something that Norman agrees with. Yet here again, there is a failure to understand a little bit of human irrationality. To Ray and probably Norman, this simple risk-reward analysis settles the matter. They perhaps fail to account how a perturbed emotional state like Dawn's can overwhelm careful reasoning. Much as Emma's line of thinking differs enough from theirs to surprise them at times, Dawn's panic makes him unpredictable to Ray because he doesn't understand it. He and Norman give warning about not behaving rashly, especially since Crone is such an unpredictable element in all this, but they leave it at that. Someone needs to go get dinner started, apparently, and so Dawn and Gilda set out ahead. Now, I wondered last time if there was any reason why Dawn was chosen as the one to frame, and I even suggested that Ray might think of him as a liability. After all, we got to see in the very first episode that Dawn is prone to emotional outbursts and hasty challenges, basically Ray's opposite. If so, it's an astute choice, as Dawn's frustration overwhelms the warnings and his own sense of caution. He diverges from the dining hall and goes to investigate the matter of the hidden room himself. Though Gilda is resistant at first, her own misgivings make her pliable to Dawn's rationale, and so they enter the office together. We do get a little further characterization as they try to uncover the secret door. Dawn tries to muscle the bookshelves this way and that, and strikes them in frustration when he doesn't immediately meet with success. Gilda instead takes a moment to study the shapes of the shelves and the walls, finding the gap where one could slide them past the other. From this observation, she guesses how the mechanism must work and reveals the hidden door with ease. Then, having overcome this sophisticated hiding spot, they are then defeated by something as simple as the door being locked. Because, you know, of course it's locked. It's a hidden room for someone doing bad things that the other residents can't find out about. 
This plan shouldn't have passed the eyeball test, but the worry and impatience hanging over these two overrode that kind of reasoning. That said, remember that they are 10 years old, and are also not borderline savants like our trio. It was a mistake to let Dawn especially leave their sight in that state, armed with such dangerous knowledge and the desire to act on it. Our episode ends with the exterior door beginning to open. While we already discussed that it's not necessarily suspicious for them to be in here in general, having the bookcase slid back like this is definitely incriminating. Depending on who is on the other side of that door, this is either a major disaster or a slightly less major disaster, but there's probably no way that it's a good thing. Don and Gilda are left hanging in the balance until next time, so let's move on from our walkthrough and look at the state of our goals. So I am not sure if I need to make goals for Don and Gilda. Um, I'm not going to do so yet, as I think their potential impact on the narrative is adequately represented by the Deception Among Us conflict for right now. Um, if this changes in upcoming episodes, I will see to it, assuming they make it past our cliffhangers resolution. For now, we'll stay with the five we have and our vague notion of demons. Uh, there's not much to say on the adult side of things this time. I don't think Crone even showed up in this episode. And the demons are obviously just an outside pressure rather than recurring characters. Ray as Isabella's spy just verifies Isabella's goals as we understood them. He confirms that she cares more about profit than the rules, and so our ordering here seems pretty spot on. I will say that we have an instance where lack of character development plays to the effectiveness of the story. Right now, our understanding of Isabella is not developed enough to guess if she would betray Ray or not. We've established that rules are a little bit malleable in her mind, which is why she was willing to indulge this years-long deal with her little spy, and so it's conceivable that she wouldn't go strictly by the book as far as shipping Ray out. I also suspect that there are adults recruited from children now and then, which might have given Ray a path out of this that was part of the normal rule set. But we also know that the reason she bends on rules is because she prioritizes the profit, the return on investment. Giving up Ray would mean giving up some of that return. At the moment, it's hard to tell how much stock Isabella puts in her word, and that has implications for both Ray and Crone. I will say that she readily agreed to being able to ship out those three as scheduled, which I assume means our trio, but I guess it doesn't have to be. If it is, though, then it suggests she always meant to ship Ray out anyway. Regardless, Ray obviously doesn't trust her enough not to make other plans, which is basically why we have the story we have so far. So to get to Ray, then, I don't really know. Save himself is still primary, um, that's all I'm really sure of, but even that got a little crack in it due to them choosing to include that scene where he looks at the hallway drawings. Since he's still a bit inscrutable, after that I have decided to put preserve options. Basically, this includes keeping his discovery as spy a secret, it includes continuing to play the good spy in Isabella's eyes, and it includes the plans he is advancing with the others for an escape. While it helps their escape plans for him to keep up the charade with Isabella, it also gives him some leverage over Norman to try to force the plan he thinks is best. This only works so long as Ray has the hypothetical backup plan. Even if Isabella was always going to double-cross him, so long as Norman believes Ray has another way out of this, the result is the same. Ray can take it or leave it, 
while they only have the escape option and need to keep him cooperative for their own good. Thus, we will add a new goal for Norman, manage Ray as asset. He needs to fulfill what Ray wants, or at least convince him that he's doing so, and at the same time, he needs to determine what information to feed backwards to Isabella via her inside man. This information needs to misdirect her, but it can't give away Ray's status as double agent, so it can't be anything easily disproven. Now, as to where it goes in this list? Well, I think it's after the keep Emma smiling goal, which, if my read on Norman is right, means that he won't actually do exactly what Ray has asked. Ray is ends-focused and results-oriented, and has had a lot of time to become inured to the death of his siblings. He's right that a bunch of young kids make surviving infinitely more difficult. It's more likely they all die than all survive, in which case it just seems self-evident that they try to maximize the chances of at least some people getting away. But he is definitely not imagining the toll that this plan would take on the others, or at least he's not caring about it. If Emma and Dawn and Gilda all believe they are rescuing everyone, only to learn at the last moments that they left them behind to their doom, they aren't going to just shrug and be glad that they at least made it. We already see Dawn's recklessness regarding Connie, which is a much longer shot than their siblings that are just on the other side of the wall. Emma might do something truly desperate, and even if she does and succeeds, there is little chance she will be an ally from then on. The toll is possibly even worse for Norman, which I think is what Ray is really missing. If he does fool Emma in order to doom the others, then not only is he giving up on their siblings, he's also betraying his closest friend both by action and deception. He'll lose Emma and Dawn and Gilda over this, and he'll have lost all the ones they leave behind, and since Ray has forced his hand, he's not going to be particularly glad of Ray's company either. This sets up Norman to preserve his life, yet lose all the things he presumably enjoyed about it or thought it was worth living for. I think if Ray understood people a little better, he would realize this is not an acceptable option for Norman when it comes down to it. Thus, for our purposes, I'm going to put this Manage Ray goal as co-secondary goal with Escape the Farm. The two are linked, uh, but can be pursued separately. For now, Norman needs to manage Ray to keep the escape goal alive, yet he must pursue some alternate version by himself while still working on the main plan with the rest. He is now playing his own double game just like Ray. Emma does not change in goals, really. It's just that we have a couple more examples of her family first drive. We picked up from that long first conversation that Ray and Norman both think the best move upon discovering Ray as spy would have been to keep quiet and use him to spread misinformation, eventually ditching him for his betrayal as a final misdirection. However, Emma's desire to believe in the traitor and count them as one of their family leads to Norman keeping Ray in the game. That's a pretty major change in how we'll progress from here. However, we saw the flip side to Emma's compassion as well. She wants to protect her family, and that means extending mercy to those she considers part of it, but it also means moving against threats to it. That white-knuckled gripping of Ray's hand when they were having their indirect conversation about his past experiments was probably just a preview of the kind of anger Emma might bring to bear in the future. Keeping her family intact and safe is likely going to drive Emma to some incredible lengths if my read on things is correct. 
In conflicts, we are already having results from the new entry we added last time, Deception Among Us. We ended our episode with Dawn and Gilda at risk of being caught trying to get into the hidden room. We'll talk about who that could be in speculation. As I said though, it can only be bad news. The question is simply, how bad is that news? The situation arises mostly from the half-truth Emma told the two of them. Dawn is driven to this recklessness because he believes he's in a race against time to save Connie, while Gilda is following his lead because she has picked up that they haven't gotten the entire story. Neither would be trying to act independently like this if they had heard the whole truth. This conflict is going to remain until they learn everything or something else happens to them. Tracking devices conflict is pretty much on ice now. Ray can defeat them, but has demands for his cooperation. So this one is tied directly to Norman's goal of managing Ray. If that changes, we'll update this, but for now, it is not driving the story by itself. That circles us back to the Traitor Among Us conflict. Unfortunately, I think I've covered most of what uh, goes in this section when discussing the opening conversation between Ray and Norman. Ray is a traitor, but not an enemy, and if we take him at his word, then our interpretation of him as an opportunist preserving options seems even more likely. There are still reasons to suspect that he isn't being completely forthright, though I have mentioned them already. One is the timing of things, of choosing this late hour to bring Emma and Norman into the truth of their situation. He was not counting on Emma wanting to take everyone as soon as she found out, with no more children lost. So he should have assumed that spilling the beans a little bit earlier would result in more time to craft a plan. This gives me reason to suspect that he was weighing the chances of a solo escape before risking his deal with Isabella. It may be that he only just now figured out how to beat the tracking devices though, so we can't be too sure of guessing about his motivations on the timing just yet. The other reason I am dubious about his given reasons was the way he acted in the second half of the conversation with Norman. He will later shift blame for his choice not to come clean immediately to the mistakes that Emma and Norman made, but during his talk with Norman, he is downright gloating after it's clear Norman isn't hanging him out to dry. No matter what Ray's actual intent or truthfulness, the fact that he still communicates regularly with Isabella, with no one else present, creates the potential for new obstacles. This conflict remains a sword hanging over our children for the foreseeable future. In theme, we'll start with trust and betrayal, and it is all over the place this time. That opening conversation begins with Ray's betrayal of their trust by hiding his status as sheepdog. Breaking faith just once will make regaining trust difficult or impossible. That's why even I, as an outside observer, have trouble taking Ray at his word when he claims to have been working towards saving the other two. I have to assume Norman would be more affected by this deceit than I am. As he says, he was disgusted with himself for being suspicious. Thus I imagine he is even less likely to trust that Ray is completely on the level with him. Had Ray divulged everything back when they first had that conversation about the gate, then Norman would probably be more likely to take him at his word. One betrayal wipes out a lot of goodwill. And yet, they have this problem. They need to trust each other on some level, or they have no hope of succeeding. I wondered last time if Norman would want to keep Ray's identity as traitor a secret purely because of the way it would undermine their efforts. It's already an uphill battle to convince people that their surrogate mother has lied to them their whole lives. 
Making yourself untrustworthy will do you no favors here. Any suspicions rightly aimed at Ray will also undermine Emma and Norman by association, especially as they are accepting his behavior and include him going forward. Ray does decide to just come clean to Emma, which will probably help her be more trusting than Norman, but I get the sense they didn't give the full story to Don and Gilda in this matter either. Unfortunately, this is not the end of brewing trust issues this episode. Ray has extracted a promise from Norman to deceive Emma, leaving the other children behind while leading her to believe they will save everyone. This means Norman either has to betray his promise to Ray, or betray the faith Emma places in him, and whichever way he chooses will diminish his trustworthiness inside their trio. Even if he ultimately chooses to see Emma's desire through, he's hiding his deal with Ray from her right now. There is a risk of betrayal here no matter what. But Emma is not blameless either. Our cliffhanger conflict originates mostly from her decision not to trust Dawn and Gilda with the full truth. One day, this will give them cause to trust her in turn, but even in the present, it has the potential for disaster. Don and Gilda themselves are betraying the trust the trio placed in them to not attract suspicion. They aren't confused about whether their actions looking for the secret door would be prohibited or not. They are choosing to satisfy their own curiosity and impatience at the expense of the group's shared goals. The best case scenario is that it's one of the trio coming through that door at the end, but even that will result in diminished trust among them. In another scenario, the things our children hide from one another would just be some of the hard lessons about growing up. Or betraying and distrusting one another wouldn't matter so much because they could make other friends and grow up and find people they trust more. But they are in a locked room, basically. They have to find their way out using the tools that are already there, and that's going to mean figuring out how to trust in spite of all the reasons not to. Somewhat related is the World of Children theme. I think I'm actually going to take this one down, because they don't really have the option of trusting adults, and their decision-making has become very unchildlike, um, at least in the case of the trio. However, there is one thing I want to mention before retiring it. There is an option that has been left off the table because of them being children overseen by adults. I think in an all-adult situation, with two jailers for three dozen prisoners with this much freedom, one of the likely suggestions to solve their issue would be to just kill the two jailers. It's life or death, you aren't here because you're serving time, and you're being controlled through an elaborate ruse. The five insiders would just corner Isabella and Crone one night, and that would be the end of it, escaping before reinforcements figure out that things are amiss. Because they are children, though, not only is this not something they consider right away, there's no guarantee they could overpower Isabella or Crone with weight of numbers, certainly not without a lot of risk to themselves. In this way, the fact that they are children does govern the way the story will play out. This thematic framing might re-emerge if they do get outside, um, especially if they are without Norman or Ray, but for now, I think we're done with it, aside from that last point. In the push your luck category, we have two pretty obvious examples, and one that is more subtle but might be conjecture. The obvious ones we have covered pretty well. Um, the first is Ray's decision to sell himself, as he put it, to Isabella, becoming the sheepdog for the shepherd. From the way he tells it, this was an avoidable outcome, 
but he took that gamble in the belief that it would pay off down the line. Messing around with the tracking devices was pushing further still, as both the experimenting on others and the things he asked for were potential ways he could tip her off that he was looking to escape. For all we know, Isabella has already guessed as much. Then, Ray pushes his luck even further by having Norman and Emma walk in on one of the shipping exchanges instead of just trying to convince them. Had they taken Norman and Emma at that point, he would be the only perfect scoring specimen left for the upcoming Tifari, or whatever. So good luck counting on your deal with Isabella to hold in that circumstance. Going even further, keeping his situation secret from the other two, and even framing Dawn, was pushing so far as to now seem reckless, and indeed it finally catches up to him. The trick again for all these instances is that Ray had a safer default option, yet took on the risk in hopes of securing some advantage. The more minor but still obvious one is Dawn and Gilda at the end. They could have just gone to dinner and waited to see how the group as a whole approached the hidden room. Instead, they engage in what they know to be risky behavior to uncover some clue that they don't even know will be there. They push their luck, and way too far, it seems. The last one, then, is the subtle example, but this only applies if my conjecture is right. Basically, if Ray is not being on the level with Norman about why he turned spy and then kept it from them, then the way he spins out his story is him gambling for advantage. Part of the reason I even think this is because of how his mood changes. Given the opportunity to try to turn the narrative in his favor, Ray may be embellishing the altruistic nature of his long con of Isabella, adding examples as they occur to him. After all, he doesn't give the excuse for why he didn't come clean immediately until the following day, as though he'd had time to shore up his story in the interim. If he is being deceitful, but this results in them trusting him enough, then it's a gamble that he wins. But if this is just another log on the fire of his deception, then it's going to cause the other's faith in him to plummet even further than the initial reveal of his status as informant. So this will match this pattern if we learn he wasn't being completely honest in the future, though that is still in question. In the tag chess analogies, I just want to reiterate what I said about the predictability of master versus master chess matches and the assumption of taking the best option. Emma's influence is what causes the divergence in decision-making, and this makes me start to wonder if we should treat that as its own theme. I guess we could call this something like logic versus emotion, or pragmatism versus optimism, or something like that. Those aren't exactly the same thing, so I'm still sorting out if I would want to talk about them both, or just the one that is more visible. Um, each has a little bit of overlap with the tag and chess stuff, but is more to do with characterization. The logic versus emotion version, at least, shows up in several character pairs. Isabella versus Crone is one, and Emma versus Ray is one, with Norman trying to navigate the middle. Even Dawn and Gilda get in on this during the scene where they try to figure out the hidden door, as Dawn is all impatient force, while Gilda employs a patient calculation. I'm undecided exactly what to do with this yet, but expect me to flesh this out further in the coming weeks. Um, there's another one about motherhood or caretaking, between what Emma does and what the Overseers do. Um, that is also going to have to wait until I have the idea more fully wrought in my mind. 
Moving to speculation then, we once again have little movement on our mysteries. Uh, this is not that unusual for the first part of a story. This list should probably grow rather than recede right up until the Act 2 break, with a few things answered here and there along the way. Thus, we will first add what is in the secret room. We already know a little bit of what's there. Uh, first of all, it's not just a room behind the hidden doorway. In Episode 3, we got a short montage of establishing shots to orient us. There is a square of light in the floor indicating an opening downward, then a shot of stairs descending from a square hatch, and then the camera looks through those stairs at Isabella in front of the radio. So at the very least, there are two secret rooms, with the radio room itself below ground. In those two rooms, we see more bookshelves, quite a few bookshelves. With a full library and her own office shelves, it doesn't seem like this already tight space would be used for simple storage. So there may be some information in those volumes that must be kept out of the kid's sight. Something else that needs to be hidden can be seen in the shadows to Isabella's right. I'm pretty sure the object with the rim light on it is Little Bunny. It's not the kind of thing she wants just any kid happening across and asking questions about. But it does set up some possibilities. One is that Don does manage to get in here somehow, and he is the one that finds it. That could either make him suspicious about what he's been told, or make him even more reckless. Another possibility is that there are several other mementos of past children being hidden in these rooms, which may provide some clues of their own. So let's also add the mystery we left off on, who is opening the door? I rather expect that this will be answered right away next time, based on the way last episode's cliffhanger scene extended into this one, but while it is still an unknown, let us speculate a moment, shall we? It's Isabella's office, and she is the main antagonist, so the most obvious telegraphed answer to this question is that it's Isabella. If it's her, and she runs into them with the bookcase pulled back, then I suspect this forces her hand in some way or another. With Emma and Norman, she has plausible deniability, and Ray to keep an eye on things, so she can aim for a stalemate where they make hints at each other, but never talk about the situation head on. Learning that more children are clued in doesn't give her the same option. She definitely can't afford to let the entire population discover the secret. She will have to silence them, either by having them shipped immediately, or something more direct. These two don't have the same protection as Emma and Norman, where Isabella is hoping to preserve them as supreme goods to be offered at the most beneficial time. She can have Dawn and Gilda dispatched and still get what she wants. It would certainly be a shot across the bow at our trio. However, her walking in at this moment would be mostly coincidence. If she is expecting the older kids to come help with dinner, and then goes looking for them, she isn't going to start the search in her own office. Thus, for a non-coincidental answer to this question, I think the most likely person opening the answer is Emma, or maybe Norman if under her direction. Emma is more likely to understand that Dawn is in an emotionally turbulent state and may act rashly, and so may have decided to go check up on things. That is probably the least disastrous outcome to this scenario, but it will still erode the trust between them. Emma will be more likely to tell them half-truths again in the future if she discovers them dismissing the trio's warning so flagrantly. That could have its own compounding consequences. Now, the most interesting answer to this question would be Crone. 
If Crone is the one walking through that door, seeing the hidden room and Dawn and Gilda uncovering it, then all kinds of narrative possibilities open up. I'm not so sure Crone would even know about said room or where it is, but even if she does, proving that these two are in on the scheming gives her advantages. It would be quite the complication if she basically blackmails them into being her informants, both against the trio and against Isabella. They won't want to own up to being caught since it makes them look bad to Emma and the rest, and Crone won't want Isabella to get wind of her continuing the side game. Thus, we would have yet another layer of intrigue and double agents running around. Crone would probably also figure out that they don't have the whole story and can drive a wedge between them and the trio by completing their understanding. I'm not sure that this is the most likely outcome, but I gotta say, I hope it's what happens. Now, to get to the more open speculations, we got just a tiny glimpse into Ray's past, which we already assumed would happen, so it's not really much of a speculation being confirmed. Um, I really think it will go beyond that, so I am leaving this and the Ray has secret speculations still untouched. I'm treating Ray as an unreliable narrator whenever he is relating the stuff to the others, so until we see an actual flashback, or he is telling someone he has no reason to lie to, I still suspect there is more to it. Nothing else gets touched, so I have just one thing to add. I guess I will call this history is also a lie. Basically, this comes from my earlier discussion about figuring out the numbers are just backwards. If you do the math on the differences between numbers and ages, a few things suggest themselves. Taking the seven-year-old on that list and subtracting other numbers from it, we get perhaps a rough guess of the rate at which children enter the system. He or she is 109 spots away from Emma, who we guessed is closer to 11 years old, and is 127 spots away from Ray, who we guessed is closer to 12. Roughly, then, we have about 25 kids per year entering the system, maybe slightly more. Applying that rate to Isabella's number suggests that she's 23 years or so older than Ray, so early 30s. That seems believable if she has been their mom for their entire lives, as it would mean her beginning the job in her late teens or early 20s. All of that adds up so far. The question that then arises is how that rate, the current numbers, and the supposed current year all interact. If Isabella is 30 plus years old, then this system would have started by at least 2015 and likely sooner. The map on the wall in the library has a date of 2010 on it, and Ray makes some cryptic reference to the technology of 2015, uh, which I will come back to. The use of our own calendar with the same year-month-day system and a few other technological clues strongly suggest that this story setting is meant to be a future that originates from our own world. Yet, going backwards from the claimed year and Isabella's likely age runs us right into the present. You could perhaps argue that this means the demons take control 20 minutes into the future, as the expression goes, but there's an obvious problem here. I am guessing they did not start numbering children at 48,537, which is Isabella's number. That figure suggests that many thousands of children enter the system before her. Even if they started numbering at 40,000, or if every 10,000's place refers to a different geographical area, you still have perhaps thousands of numbers that should have been used before getting to Isabella, 
who in universe appears to have been born on or before 2015. You understand? At a rate of 25 kids per year, that's a lot of years. Even if they started numbering with 48,000 as zero, it's still over 20 years before you get to Isabella's number. If 40,000 is the original zeroth kid, then the system has been running for over 300 years, and if it actually started at zero, forget about it. Plus, for her to be the youngest mom ever, there has to be much older adults in the system for precedent. It must have started well before the 2015 date, unless the 2045 date is a fiction. Thus, beyond the charade of this being an orphanage that takes in children and finds them homes, the representation of the world outside might be a bigger lie than it seems. What the children are told may be hiding more than just the existence of the demons. The current year seems like it might be a lie, or else the way they've crafted the numbers is kind of sloppy. This seems like the kind of falsehood that even the adult humans might not be aware of, um, as they were captive in the system themselves. Now, I mentioned Ray's cryptic reference to the tracking devices not being the kind of product that would exist in 2015. So, why 2015? It's supposed to be 2045, and they're discussing devices that must last over 10 years, so they know they're talking about 2035 at least for the tech level. Then I started wondering if there is more to that story. I already noted how odd it was that this place was so low tech, with the lanterns and the manual housekeeping chores and all that. Then Ray makes this aside, which suggests a technological ceiling at a point 30 years in the past. How does that make sense? And the other two don't question it at all. Is it possible then that part of the deception is a story about something that made human technological progress retract? Some calamity which results in a smaller and simpler world for those who survive, with the years just before held up as the zenith of human progress? Like, maybe there are no books in this library with a date past 2015, and the explanation is this hypothetical calamity. That would probably curtail a lot of kids' curiosity about the world outside, and make them believe the warnings about the edges of the property being dangerous. I mean, Emma knew what a truck was, but had never seen one before, so we know they have theoretical understanding of human history up to a certain point. I realize I'm getting a little far out now, but this makes me think that the calamity, as I'm calling it, was the demons showing up, which I guess means they appeared in the real 2015. Of course, any books written after that point might give that reality away, and so none exist for the children to read with some other explanation for this absence being provided. If such an explanation also justified why their lives are so low-tech and isolated compared to the past, then that just helps the whole lie hang together. So, I'm speculating that there is some made-up history that the kids are taught, and it includes some reason for technological regression. I'm guessing the given year of 2045 is therefore a lie, and I think all of this is to help cover up the demon's ascendancy and the resulting change in the world. I'm not certain if the adults who are spared are in on the full extent of this or not, but I do think that if true, such a ruse waits to blindside people like Ray who think they have put together an understanding of the outside world. Okay then, that is all. Um, I know that last one ended up being a little complicated, and I don't have as good a basis as I do for some of the others, 
but figuring out the numbering got my head spinning a bit, so I figured I'd share what I'd come up with. I'll see you next week. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly On Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.